everybody. Um, my name is Jolie McCullough. I am the criminal justice reporter at the Texas Tribune. Uh, thank you all for coming to our panel on criminal justice reform we can all agree on. Um, I want to start by introducing my panelists here. We have Vikrant Reddy right next to me, a senior research fellow specializing in criminal justice policy at the Charles Koch Institute. He is a major conservative voice on criminal justice reform in the nation's capital, but his roots are here in Texas, where he also worked at, where he worked at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, which is a conservative think tank. Uh, next to him, we have Mark Levin, uh, director of the Center for Effective Justice and the Right on Crime Initiative at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. He's a regular face at the Texas Capitol, voicing support for prison reform and limited government. Next to him, we have State Representative Joe Moody, a Democrat from El Paso who serves as the chairman of the House Criminal Jurisprudence Committee. He was involved this year in passing several reform laws such as the Sandra Bland Act and a bill aimed at preventing wrongful convictions. Uh, next to him is Kim Ogg, the new Harris County District Attorney. She is the first Democrat to lead the office in nearly four decades. And one of her first policy changes was to decriminalize possession of small amounts of marijuana in her county. Um, and last but not least is uh, Mark Gonzalez, the newly elected district attorney in Nueces County. Uh, this is his first gig as a prosecutor, defeating the Democratic incumbent in the primary after eight years as a criminal defense lawyer. Um, so I wanted to start um, talking criminal justice is one of these reform, er these policy areas where you actually do often see bipartisan agreement, which is fairly rare in politics. Um, but it doesn't necessarily always work. So there were a couple big issues in the legislature this year, um, bail reform and you know, raising the age of uh, adult, adult criminal responsibility. Um, and these bills didn't pass. So I was hoping, Chairman Moody, Mark, you might talk a little bit about what happened in those areas this year. Sure, on, on raise the age, I think there is a concern with the counties that we're gonna shift a burden. So you have a 17 year old population that right now is being taken care of on the state dime. They're in the adult system. And so the counties are asking that if some, this population is being sent to them, that they be, that the costs be offset. And because they're gonna grab the population that they're not currently, currently taking care of and that comes with the cost. But the, every study will tell you, I mean, if you look at Illinois as a case study, it actually doesn't, that cost doesn't increase. So part of our job is to convince, and Chairman Dutton has been doing this for quite some time, you know, Gene Wu has been working on this. Uh, you know, our job is to talk to people and let them know that the, the cost that they're, they expect to see is actually not gonna occur. You're gonna see a cost savings like you saw in Illinois. And they have major metro areas in Illinois, so it's, it's very comparable. And so that's what we need to do is, is get people comfortable with the idea that we can, we can take that step forward and it's not really gonna hit our local governments that hard. And those, probation departments are much more equipped to handle that population than the adult criminal justice system. So, I mean, and in terms of uh, a, a bail bond reform, you know, I, I, think we, I think we missed an opportunity. And what's gonna happen now is that there's gonna be a federal court decision out of Harris County that's going to mandate things across the state. So the legislature had the opportunity to get in and fix that, and they decided not to. And we're gonna, just, we're gonna find out whether that was a wise decision or not. Yeah, and if I could add on the raise the age, I totally agree with everything you said and appreciate your leadership on both of these issues. But on raise the age, we're now, there's only a few other states where 17-year-olds are automatically considered adults. And as some of you may know, in Texas, if you're 17, you have to be in school. It's covered under the compulsory attendance law. You're supposed to be in high school, and in most cases, living with your parents. And yet, we're putting you in the adult uh, criminal justice system with the scarlet letter of a lifetime conviction. And as uh, Chairman Moody alluded to, the juvenile system is set up to work with schools and work with families most importantly. The juvenile programs that get the best results are those that partner with the family to create more structure for that uh, child. So, um, uh, and of course, this wouldn't change the fact that those who commit the most serious offenses could still be certified to stand trial as an adult and face those consequences. So um, there were 93 votes in the House, which I'm pretty proud of uh, for this last session. And um, I'm optimistic, particularly if we make it part of a larger juvenile reform next session. Um, and Chairman Whitmire has said he's eager to work on it, but to where we could actually move 
there's only about 1,100 kids left in the state uh, youth lockups. We could actually create more community-based uh, programs, residential programs run by counties or nonprofits that aren't $450 a day uh, like our state youth lockups with much better results uh, like they have in Missouri and so forth. So I, I think that we could actually save money in the whole system, but the main reason to do it really is uh, that it's the right thing to do and better public safety outcomes. The recidivism is significantly lower in the juvenile system uh, for these youths. As far as bail reform, uh, we're very excited about moving forward on that next session. And of course, the Fifth Circuit case that Chairman Moody alluded to uh, basically threw out the misdemeanor bail system in Harris County. They found 40% of the individuals, bail was being set so high, they were languishing in jail on misdemeanors. And for the most part, they would get probation. So what it means is the punishment is being administered before the conviction, which is fundamentally at odd, odds with our due process uh, constitutional guarantees. There were some small reforms. I mean, Sandra Bland had some bond, bail bond reforms for mental illness, IDD, and you also had some changes in relation uh, to uh, fine-only offenses and PR, having PR bonds automatically instituted in those cases. So there were minor tweaks to bond, but nothing, nothing like that case is going to do to the system of Texas. Okay. Unfortunately, we have some pretty good leadership from the prosecutorial side on this. So. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> yep, Harris County is ground zero for bail reform, and we're the site of the current pending lawsuit that's uh, up on appeal now and going to the Supreme. So. Uh, we'll see how it comes out. But right now, misdemeanor defendants are being released after 24 hours. Uh, there are some public safety concerns. They are generally outweighed by the greater concern of keeping people who are simply too poor in jail to bond out in jail for that reason alone. And I think we're looking at significant need for, or need for significant reform uh, because bail bonds are in our Constitution. They reflect a strong special interest group that's powerful and that... Uh, is working nationwide to protect their industry. And um, in terms of the reform that will be needed legislatively, I think we're going to count on your leadership. That kind of brings me into a next point, is how different levels of government can work with each other in this topic area. Um, you know, we've been hearing a lot lately that people are saying the first step into any type of reform is to look to your DAs and your prosecutors at your home county. What types of like what, knowing that you two are now new, fairly new in your office, like what, how have you been using this power and working with other governments and you know, with Republicans since you're both Democrats? I'll answer that pretty easily. I mean, reform is, it starts at the district attorney's office. What you can do immediately is uh, have bail reform if that's what you choose to do, if that's the vision of your office. You can say, you know what, policy-wise or practice, uh, across the board, we have a, a state jail felony possession. We're going to do PR bonds on everybody because you have to realize the collateral damage when someone gets arrested um, you know, can, can, can outweigh any of the uh, things that can happen to that person. They go to jail and they can't get out for a week. They lose their job. Then it starts to, to create this cycle. So we, we, don't, we never thought of those things. But when you're on the other side as a defense attorney, you see that because you have those individuals coming to you to say, hey, this is a problem here. And then when you have the opportunity to fix that, that's what we've been trying to do. And I always look towards Harris County uh, because uh, I just do what Kim does and then take credit for it. Um, <laughs> but with that being said, we have the availability to immediately make reform because we have the, uh, the discretion to do so. So at least it can be done immediately. But that has to start in each different county. Well, I mean, I say, for those of you who aren't that familiar with it, I mean, basically the issue is you could have somebody like Robert Durst who dismembered people who has millions of dollars can go free, and then you have other people in jail for small amounts of drugs who don't have any money, and they stay there, and as you said, they lose their job, they lose their housing, and they're actually at greater risk. I mean, that's the core of it, that the research is very solid, that if you're there for 48, 72 hours, become disconnected from employment, family, housing, you're actually more of a risk to public safety when you leave that jail. And that doesn't even begin to talk about the people that are mentally ill, for example. And if I just may add briefly, the bad people, guess what? They have money, they have lawyers, and they're out. Those are the ones that you're worried about that we're keeping in on misdemeanor, marijuana, criminal trespass, or mentally ill issues. And the bad people who should be in jail, they're not in jail. So um, criminal justice isn't a partisan issue. And when a crime happens, nobody ever asks what party the victim is with. Nobody ever asks the accused what political affiliation they have. So working across the aisle, it's, a, would say, an easier branch of government and an easier system uh, to work across the aisle with Republicans, at least for me. Um, first Democrat in Harris County elected to that position in 38 years. 
So the idea that we're trying to protect people through public safety and good policies and be humane and protect their constitutional rights at the same time is not really um, controverted between parties. We agree. Well, so I, 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 pretty pretty simple. You know, I think that, and I think that there, for the most part, there is some consensus around how we build that policy from the conservative and from more liberal progressive angles. However, even this session, there's a good example. You have someone like like Kim Og, who is being uh, very proactive within her own prosecutorial discretion and figuring out how to handle low-level drug offenses. And then you have the lieutenant governor in the state calling her county uh, a sanctuary city for drug offenders, right, so you know, using very heightened rhetoric. So there are still conservatives that have this, and the Trump administration is no, you know, is no outlier here. There are, there are many people within that camp that are still late 80s, early 90s, Democrats too, because they were of that same bent, that they're lock them up, hang them high, uh, mentality, and so part of that is figuring out how those of us who feel that that's not the right way to do that can come together and tamp down some of those more, you know, incendiary uh, statements. But I'll also say I was on a panel in D.C. a few months ago with a very left-wing guy who said we ought to, everyone ought to be released pre-trial. I mean, even if you're a serial killer, uh, you can't be denied bail for any reason. I'm like, no, that doesn't make sense. Um, so I mean, there is a certain, um, I think. People like y'all who are reform-minded prosecutors, uh, you bring, regardless of your party, kind of a, uh, the balance of seeing the fact that, yes, at the core of it, public safety is critical, but it has to be balanced with our constitutional rights. Right. And, well, and there are still, like you're there are still some divisive issues. I know in the federal administration, which I want to get to in a minute, um, has had a, some shifting policy ideas. But there are still, like, you are at home still working with some issues that you aren't getting the support on, like... Chairman Moody said um, your marijuana policy right. has gotten some heat from Republicans. So how do you kind of work with that when you are trying to work on these bipartisan issues when you still have this disagreement in these other areas? We let the evidence speak for itself. We uh, explain that prosecutors' jobs are to protect the public. And in reviewing the amount of resources that were being spent on low-level drug offenders, we'd, spend, we'd been spending about $27 million every year for 10 years, locking up 10,000 misdemeanor marijuana offenders every year, while 7,000 rape kits sat on the shelf untested. And nobody agreed with that on either side. And so um, how we reform criminal justice drug policy is within the discretion of your elected DA. And so it became a major issue during my campaigns in 2014 and 2016. 67% of the Houstonians that were polled in my election were for decriminalization. And in truth, I didn't decriminalize marijuana. I can't, that's the legislature's prerogative. What I did is I used my discretion to work with law enforcement and we agreed, law enforcement, 90 plus agencies in Harris County, that four hours of a cop's time taking somebody in on a joint would be better spent patrolling your streets trying to catch the burglars that are stealing our cars and breaking into our homes. So. I think that the evidence of public safety and the fact that crime has not gone up since we stopped arresting people for misdemeanor amounts of marijuana is persuasive. I think the fact that we're saving $27 million a year uh, to use on more important public safety concerns like crimes against people and crimes against property speaks for itself. So they had no evidence on the other side that arrest for marijuana at that level, one-tenth of our docket in Harris County, was making anybody safer. So my thought is I think we can prove that not doing it can make you safer if we use the resources in a more targeted way against the people who are dangerous. So, Nikron, you are now living in Washington in very exciting times. Um, so, <laughs> call it that. <laughs> so, can you kind of? I think everyone is probably aware, but there has been this shift in the with President Trump and the Trump administration away from this, you know, these criminal reform policies and more towards tough on crime ideas again. We've got um, they're reinstating, you know, providing military equipment to police departments. There's been talk, you know supporting civil asset forfeiture practices. How, if at all, do you see these 
um, ideas affecting politics, affecting Texas, you know, the congressional delegation, and affecting state and local leaders back here at home? The political question, I'm just as interested as you are, and I want to ask some of the elected officials, but on the policy level, the really interesting thing is that it has not had as big an impact as you might think, because most criminal justice in the country happens at the state and local level, as it's supposed to happen. That's what the founders would have wanted. You could release every single person from federal prison right now. You wouldn't want to do that. People like El Chapo would be running around. But in theory, you could do that you'd only release 6% of the prison population in this country. Most of it happens at the state and local level. So the question is, are the state and local leaders taking guidance from Attorney General Sessions and from some of the folks in Washington who are issuing the heated rhetoric? I don't think so. You know, We just had a session here in Texas where the Sandra Bland Act was passed, where the state budget is authorized for prison closures. That's in Texas. Louisiana passed one of the most sweeping criminal justice reform bills in recent uh, US history. North Dakota passed significant criminal justice reform. Michigan and Ohio have had uh, improvements to their civil asset forfeiture practices. All five of those states that I just mentioned are states that voted for Donald Trump in November. So that's fine. They support Trump. They voted for Trump. They elected him. But that doesn't mean that uh, when it comes down to a matter of policy, uh, when it comes down to actual you know, uh, legislation, that they're simply taking orders from Washington, D.C. That hasn't really happened. Yeah, well, and I'll tell you, Oklahoma was one of the strongest states for Trump and voted 65% for a ballot measure to reduce low-level drug possession to a misdemeanor, a jailable misdemeanor, but still. And I would say, maybe I'll get in trouble for this, but Oklahoma's even more conservative than Texas, uh, which isn't a bad thing. But, um, you know, the, the point really being, there's if you look at the administration, there's a lot of support among people like Vice President Pence, Ben Carson, of course, our own uh, great former Governor Rick Perry for these reforms. And for those of you that didn't see the Washington Post article last week, uh, our President, Brooke Rollins, uh, met with Jared Kushner, Senator Cornyn, many other leaders uh, at the White House, and uh, I, I'm very optimistic that there's going to be a significant effort. And, and I think that um, you have to separate some of the issues that the Attorney General obviously has province over. One of the issues that came up, for example, was the uh, drug sensing memorandum from Eric Holder. And, you know, the federal laws are what they say they are. I mean, they're very strict when it comes to mandatory minimums on drug possession, and Attorney General Sessions is one who really believes you kind of strictly adhere to the wording of the law. And so he was well within his authority to do that, even though it's bad policy uh, to you know, lock people in federal prison for 20 years for relatively small drug cases. Um, so, But it really emphasized the need for Congress to actually change some of these uh, excessive federal laws. And uh, I think that the administration has been consistent in the fact that they're not going to kind of push the envelope on executive authority, as has been done in the past, even when the policy itself doesn't make sense. Okay. Have you guys been... you? Elected officials over here, have you been noticing any type of shift in pressure? I think, I think there's actually, there is a reluctance to delve into um, drug policy reform in a real way. There's some minor tweaks around the edges that people are willing to work on. But you know, yeah, when, you have, when you have the attorney general saying, I want to go prosecute in states that have uh, authorized medical cannabis, uh, that, that, that that's the position he's taken. For us, we have a Compassionate Use Act that is very narrow, and the goal is a bipartisan goal to expand that. It is, it is tamped down. It's tamped down because we say, well, we don't know what's going on at the federal level. We don't know what's going to happen. So why are we going to spin our wheels in a five-month session on something that we don't know what's going to happen coming out of D.C.? And, and all, I mean, D.C. is one thing, but we also have a new governor in this state, a governor that's very different from Rick Perry when it comes to criminal justice reform. He is, an old, he is a very old school, hang him high, lock him up, Mentality. That's that, that. That is governor. I don't think he would shy away from that as a leg. I mean, that is what he feels about criminal justice. He is not a reform-minded governor. Rick Perry, for all the reasons I would disagree with him, he was a reform-minded governor, and that was a good thing for us. And we built a pretty good. Uh, we built a pretty good perch to keep moving from. I don't. I don't see that anymore. A lot of people think that we can't pass any major reforms because the governor is going to veto them. We've passed some things around the edges, but unfortunately, we, the big pieces that we need to move that there are there's bipartisan support for in both chambers. 
Like what? We, we see, well, I mean, we talk about anything dealing with expanding uh, medical use, medical use of cannabis. There's bipartisan bicameral support for that. Decriminalization of low-level possession. You have, uh, you know, raise the age. You have a lot of these other, you have a lot of these other reforms that we can get bigger and broader. Ban the box. You have bigger things that we can get to, but we're instead we're chomping at the edges rather than getting to the meat of the problem. Yeah, I would disagree a bit on that just in the sense that if you look at all the bills he signed, I mean, the fines and fees bill, the debtor's prison legislation from last well, that's, session. That's constitutional. I mean, well, I he's, know, just, he's, just, he's just reinforcing really... what case law says, that you can't lock people because they're poor. Well, but so it's a big I'm glad he did it. Of people. I'm glad he so did the, it. But, but I mean, not just that, but I mean, a number of the uh, non-disclosure record sealing for uh, misdemeanor and... Uh, Those don't really do anything. Well, Those I mean, don't really do anything. Non-disclosure doesn't do anything. Well, it's if a, you don't a, want to have any record, there's thirty. There's thirty. So let's talk about. So yeah. you get on deferred. You're 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 charged with a low-level crime, and they're going to go. You know what? We're not going to convict you. We're going to give you deferred adjudication. We're not. We're going to put you on probation. We're going to hold your guilty plea. You're going to plead guilty to the court. And we're going to hold it out here. We're hold it over your head. We're making you go through probation. And guess what? If you comply with that, you pay your fees and your fines, and it's thousands of dollars. And you hired an attorney because if you didn't hire an attorney, you didn't get that deal, right? So you get in that program, you complete everything, and then you got to hire an attorney to go in a civil case to get an order of non-disclosure. After five years. After five years. And the DAs, not these folks, they can fight it off yeah. in certain cases. They can try to stop you from getting that order of non-disclosure. And if you're successful in getting that, there's 34 separate exceptions. So 34 state entities, 34 agencies, 34 types of entities can get your records anyway. But, but, and, 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 but private, the, and private companies have bought them in the meantime. But the truth is, the, five years, so it's the, the federal government does not prosecute very many people, but they set the tone for the nation. And so most Americans do not distinguish between the local elected DA and the U.S. attorney for that area in their state. They look at all of us the same and paint us with a broad brush. And so while 99% of your cases in America are handled at your local district attorneys and law enforcement level, only a few percent are handled by the federal government. Because, but because the president and General Sessions have such power from the pulpit in which they speak, um, it frightens people and it sets a tone. And it's done that on immigration. We've seen a reluctance of witnesses to come forward and report crimes or testify against people who committed crimes. This is damaging. So while the impact of, of General Sessions' statements in truth and in fact are small statistically, they have a much more impactful uh, impression on people than the local district attorneys. And that's, that's where I think the difference, the divide is between local prosecutors and U.S. attorneys. Generally, we work just fine together. Uh, they want a case, great, we've got so much work, have the case. We want a case, they say the same thing. So we've worked together for years, but it's the, it's the message and where it's coming from that I think is confusing the public. Well, I mean, look at the numbers, though. I mean, our prison population right now is lowest it's been since the 90s. It just went down another 400 last month. It's 144,000 something. It was at its peak 157,000. And we, over these last several years, Texas, as all of you know, has gained lots of people in the general population. And obviously, our crime rate is the lowest it's been um, since 1967. So you look at, I mean, the governor, it was Perry and then Abbott, they're overseeing this dramatic decline in the prison population at the same time we're Safer, and I would I would say that you know the governor tweeted about the Sandra Bland Act. He didn't just go into a dark room and sign it. So, but again, a lot of it is we started working with Governor Perry. I mean, it was well, how many we how many years we governor? Twelve years. So, not every governor comes into office and says the first thing I want to do is work on criminal justice. There's a lot of other issues, but uh, but I'm optimistic. You know, look at all the bills that went into law last session that the governor signed. That we're going to continue to see progress there. Even the Sandra Bland Act was stripped down significantly in terms of what it, it initially set out to do. And, and it's no secret it would not have passed had it not been stripped down. So there are some good things within it. There's some mental health reforms. There's some bail reforms. There's some reporting things that we can get done. More data is always better for us to have. Right. So I kind of wanted to talk about the compromises that need to be made here for bipartisan support because you are coming from different mindsets to reach this similar conclusion. So Standard Land Act would be a good example because there were compromises made in there. Can you talk about just exact that process, how that bipartisan process worked to make that something to something that could pass? I don't know that it was a bipartisan <laughs> process. It was it was take this out or it doesn't pass. I mean that I mean that's really what the, the, these are these are policies that aren't gonna I mean that that bill was 
was sent to a different committee because the other committee was never going to put it forward because they didn't agree with the policy that was contained within it. But you know, you have someone like Chairman Coleman and, Senator, and, and Chairman Whitmire on the other side that are willing to work across the aisle to negotiate, and un they understand. And this is where that longevity of those members, they understand that you have to take things a piece at a time. So the advances of the Sandra Bland Act were beneficial to us because we're going to be able to gather a lot of good data on terms of use, in, in terms of use of force what's going on in our jails, but not only in our jails. That bill calls for training for officers that are interacting with members of the public, too, and reporting that data back. So even though they knew they couldn't get to the ultimate goal of what was the original form of that bill, they knew that gathering the data was going to give them strength moving forward in 2019, 2021, or whoever is, is moving forward on these things. But you know, it was a political reality that those bills weren't going to pass unless some of those things were with, removed. Well, the main one was we had an opportunity now to do at the local level, which is to say police shouldn't arrest for Class C's. And Chairman White had a great amendment which said, okay, if we're going to allow them to arrest people for, you know, you can be arrested in Texas for not wearing your seatbelt. That went all the way up to the Supreme Court. It's a Class C fine-only offense. And there's a lot of other ones, failure to signal, uh, broken taillight. And so what James White's amendment is, say, if we're not going to be able to prevent arrest for that, we ought to at least say police have to file an statement saying why they chose to make an arrest in its thousands of cases, not the vast majority, but still thousands of cases where an arrest is made. And But what I wanted to get to is police departments tomorrow, city councils tomorrow could institute this locally and say their police department is not going to do this, or if they are, they're going to document why they chose to arrest somebody. So it's another area where one of the reasons we got the debtor's prison bill is San Antonio had already stopped jailing people who were unable to pay fines and fees. And you know what? Their collections went up. So that made it real easy to sell in the legislature that the whole state ought to come along. So that kind of gets back to what you, you two were talking about, about things starting at the local level. So what kind of um, relationship and how can the state level and the, and, and the local level work together to create some of these reform practices? You know, I, I would say that each one of us is kind of in our own little community, our own little space, and you have the, the ability to do what you feel is right for your community. So even though you have these laws where you can arrest someone for a Class C misdemeanor, I can tell you that in my town, Corpus Christi won't be doing that because they can't afford to do so. So we have to know what's appropriate in that area. So we know that that's never going to happen there, even though Texas, you may be able to do that or it's something that is still legal. So I think that that's kind of what's unique about the positions that we have at the local level. You know, we can actually have reform immediately, but it's getting like-minded people and having these conversations. I mean, we are, are in conversations where you got two people from Texas speaking with guys like this uh, nationwide and talking to audiences like this so that way we can communicate that reform is, is, is popular now. Uh, reform is something people are talking about and how can we do this? Uh, and, and the main thing is being smart on crime because everybody may have that one common denominator, that's economics, right? What makes sense? What saves us money and what makes us safe? If you can accomplish all those three things and you will be successful in whoever you're talking with, whether they're Democrats, whether they're Republicans, or whether you're even worse, before I got into office, a defense attorney. So, I mean, it just <laughs> depends. Uh, but, I mean, you have to have those relationships. And I know when I went into office, my commissioner's courts are all Republicans. Uh, but they need me just as much as I need them because if I don't do my job, we were in, uh, we lost $140,000 now to my county, that's a lot of money. And if we didn't pr process our cases uh, appropriately, then we were going to lose $1.4 million. And that's a lot for Corpus Christi. Uh, but that started at the district attorney's office. So if I didn't do my job, my, I was letting my community down. And the commissioners knew that, so they'd given me the tools that I need. So that's what forges those relationships, economics. I would say that there are issues that transcend politics. A good one, uh, a good example, and it's a law that did pass this last session with all but four votes in the State House of Representatives and the Senate. So imagine something that had unanimous support but for four guys. Um, and that was called Jenny's Law. And Jenny's Law was about leveling the playing field for victims or really any witnesses who were, asked, who were going to be thrown in jail uh, as a result of their refusal to appear in court or to testify once they got to court. And Jenny was a mentally ill young woman raped out on the streets of Houston during a, an episode where she was homeless. Um, prosecutors failed to prepare for the case. Prosecutors uh, took extreme action against Jenny once the case began and Jenny fell apart on the witness stand and didn't want to testify anymore. They jailed Jenny for 27 days. Um, 
forcing her to testify, and she was a good witness. It's, it's not that uh, I'm suggesting that we should let dangerous people go, but the way that she was brutalized by the prosecutors who sought a conviction against a dangerous person, uh, there were so many other options. And everyone agreed that there were other options that could have been used, and that to jail this victim without appointing her a lawyer or giving her a hearing in open court was wrong, and we all agreed on that. And so I think when you have a, a problem that transcends politics, that everybody basically thinks is wrong, other than the prosecutors who did it and the four guys in the state house that voted against it, um, that's a good place for bipartisan reform to start. And that victims' rights bill, by the way, um, passed in its first session. So I think there are plenty of places that we can find common ground where everybody can see for themselves this is a bad situation and we want to do something about it. And if we work on those issues, we'll push our state farther forward than we have in decades. Okay, well that is a nice segue into my next topic, which is the future. So what are the big issues that are going to be coming up next? Um, we'll start with you at the national level. What are you seeing that are going to be the next, the next big topics in criminal justice reform? Oh, there's quite a few things. I think forensic science reform, major forensic science reform, is probably on the horizon. Uh, we have... Jeff Sessions uh, leading the way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not so sure about that. I, you know, on a, on a side note, let me just say, I, it's not even clear to me how popular Jeff Sessions' ideas are in the White House itself. Gerald Kushner just, uh, Jared Kushner, excuse me, just had this big meeting last week. Uh, I'm just not, it's not clear, I'm not even sure who's going to still be in the federal government a few months or years from now, you know? Wow. So, uh, but, but as far as what people who are uh, in the research field are talking a lot about, the uh, faith that we have put in fingerprint evidence and DNA evidence and, and bite marks and some of the science around arson, a lot of these things are beginning to be discredited. I think that's a big issue that uh, is going to come up nationally, not just at the federal level, but all sorts of states. I think that you can see, I, I know that Jeff Sessions feels differently, but the momentum to reform civil asset forfeiture practices across the country is overwhelming. Uh, it's entered pop culture. John Oliver did a very famous segment on civil asset forfeiture that if you've never seen, you should go look it up on YouTube. I think that's coming up as a very uh, big thing. And I think actually, on a positive note, the one thing that even Attorney General Sessions does seem supportive of is more work on reentry. And I think finding more opportunities uh, to put people back on their feet after they've come out from behind bars. You can be the most tough on crime conservative in the world, but you still have to acknowledge that 94% of the people, 93 I think, percent of the people who go into prisons in the country eventually come out. And then they live next door to you and me. And we all have an interest in making sure that they're not going to hurt us again. So we want to make sure that they have a job, that they have housing, that they have uh, the opportunity to be productive American taxpayers once again. And that's, you don't even have to be a softy, hug-a-thug type. You can be Mr. Tough on Crime and you have to care about that because you don't want more crimes to happen. And we have heard good things from DOJ on that particular issue. So I think that is a major issue that's coming up also. Well, as far as Texas goes, um, we've covered drug sensing reform, bail reform, raise the age. Um, a few of the others are uh, probation revocations. This continues to be a major issue. Uh, your chance of being revoked from probation is several times higher than parole, which is counterintuitive since the people on parole were in prison before. Um, so it's presumably a tougher crowd. Um, but you know, half of the probation revocations are for technical violations. Could be missing a meeting, uh, having a beer. You're not supposed to have alcohol, even if your offense had nothing to do with alcohol. Um, leaving the county without permission. I'm not trivializing it because it's critical that people comply with probation. But the research has shown swift and certain sanctions, which whether it's electronic monitoring, a curfew, a night in county jail, a weekend in jail, those actually are most effective and, of course, cost a lot less than sending someone to prison for whatever's remaining on their probation term. So a number of states have either capped technical revocations, particularly as it relates to nonviolent offenders, set up a matrix of sanctions and positive incentives to change behavior. Uh, so this is a major area that we could make progress on. Also, grand jury reform.
reform. Uh, we had some legislation last session that would have just very basic things, a transcript, a right to have your defense counsel present in the grand jury, uh, a requirement that prosecutors share exculpatory evidence with the grand jury, um, and that you can't keep convening new grand juries uh, like we saw in the Tom DeLay case with no new evidence. Um, and uh, so uh, that, uh, you know, those are, and I was actually at the DOJ the other day in a meeting, and the top attorneys there said, you mean there's no recording of the grand jury proceedings? Because in the federal system, that's just standard course, that you could get a transcript of the grand jury uh, to figure out what was said. So um, we don't want to make the grand juries many trials. The defense lawyer wouldn't be able to speak or anything like that. But we do want to ensure that there's integrity to the proceedings, and that frankly, as the bar rules require, if the prosecutor is aware of exculpatory evidence, they ought to share that with the grand jury. Uh, by the way, because once you're indicted, your reputation's ruined. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, you know you have to some you know you incur a tremendous amount in legal costs and so forth. So just being indicted alone is a you know sanction. What are two district attorneys like to? Yeah, I think mental illness is what's top of my list. Um, I certainly want laws that allow people back into the workforce sooner easier, so expunction is very important, non-disclosure is very important, it'll be at the top of my list, but our problem in Harris County, one of our many problems is that the Harris County Jail is the largest mental health facility in the state, and that the problem of dealing with the mentally ill has been pushed by the state through um, atrophy, really, and failure to fund down to the local taxpayer and when the, man, when the person is a nuisance and they are homeless and they're self-medicating and they're in somebody's business, they get picked up for trespass. And so we have a situation where the same several hundred people cycle through our system over and over for the same crime of trespass, and it costs our county about $5 million for those 200 individuals. And so a year. You heard me right. And so I think as taxpayers, there's an opportunity for bipartisanism. It's based on evidence. It's fiscal uh, figures that everybody agrees on. Can't we do better than treating our mentally ill in the Harris County Jail? And the answer is, of course we can. It's a matter of political will and how we're going to spend our resources. Those, by the way, are your resources. I, I would say the top of my list is the DAs just to uh, honestly bring humanity back in that office. You know, that's one of the main things that has lacked for so long, one of the main things that I saw as a defense counsel, you know. Uh, and also work on reentry. If you want to give somebody a goal, that way to, to not ever, once you have that stigma as a felony conviction, you get it at a young age, typically statistics show that, you know, you outgrow things, you grow out. But if you have that felony conviction, you will never, ever, ever be able to get the things that you probably could have gotten if you didn't have it. So what I would like to do and, and work with whoever, whoever can is, is, is we work on a program where after so many years, you've, you've, you've been successful, you've never violated, you have kids now. I mean, I've met so many people who they, they haven't gotten in trouble for 10 years, but they still can't get that employment because they made a mistake when they were 19 or they didn't have a lawyer. You know, and that's another thing on the top of my goal. Yeah. I want people to come to my office and say, well, I didn't need a good lawyer to get that deal that I can get an expungement. I want an equal playing ground where if we are transparent and efficient, you don't have to get somebody. It's not based on economics or anything else. It's real simple. You should get a fair deal if you're accused of a crime. And if you do something bad, make no mistake, my humanity will not be, uh, be nice. It, it, it would obviously be to hold you accountable, and that's what it should be. We need to be smart on crime. On the, on the bad stuff, you put them away because they're a danger to society. But on the, on the easy stuff where people make mistakes, you let them learn their mistakes and move on so that way they can be productive uh, citizens. I think, it's, I think it's just simplistic and simple. And maybe that's just me, but um, you know, I think that's the best way, at least on my list. Chairman Moody, what's the next big bipartisan push here? Well, I mean, I think a lot of things have been touched on here that are going to continue to move on. One thing that hasn't been mentioned that I think should be mentioned is uh, reforming our sexual assault laws in Texas. There were some big moves to do that this session. The one thing that was left on the table was actually making uh, affirmative consent the law here in Texas. Um, unfortunately, that was the one piece that didn't get across the finish line. That needs to be done. That is something that is bipartisan that we can work on, and it makes sense. And it doesn't really change the trial procedure, but it changes the perception of, of, of how we treat victims in this system and how we, how we handle those types of, uh, of cases. Uh, the other, if I'm looking to the next frontier, I look towards principles, because I'm in the minority party. I look towards principles of my conservative colleagues. I look towards fiscal restraint, fiscal responsibility. I look towards the size and power of government. I look towards sanctity of life. And so if I'm looking to the next frontier of bipartisanship, I'm looking to the death penalty. There are Supreme Court cases 
now, I know the, the, the district attorney in Harris County deals with that. I know that district attorney in Nueces County is figuring out how to handle things going forward with the death penalty and how to, how to go forward with those cases. But we have cases for the last 12 years that have told Texas the, the Texas legislature, you need to change your laws as it relates to the implementation of the death penalty, at the very least when it deals with mental illness and intellectual and developmental disability. We have ignored that call for 12 years as a legislature. It's time to have that conversation. And I think that the big frontier next for bipartisanship, and Ron Paul agrees, and, and Rick Santorum's talked about the death penalty, and so you have conservative leaders that are out there talking about these things. If you want to create the next big issue when it comes to bipartisanship and criminal justice reform, it is reforming the implementation of the death penalty at the very least when it, refer, when it, when it deals with serious mental illness, IDD, and the next step would be abolition. And that's what Texas needs to lead the way on. Because it, it is not fiscally responsible to continue to, to operate the system that we're operating today. Mark, I saw you kind of bobbing along. Well, we, were, we stay out of the death that. penalty issue for the most we're gonna part. We're going to get although, you in. We're going to well, get you in. Well, I was very much with Jeff Leach, what, how he weighed in mm. on that particular case uh, involving the law of the parties, uh, which goes to the fact that someone didn't even have an intent to, uh, to, uh, for uh, a homicide. It was a you know, botched robbery and, and so forth. Just the guy to was also clarify, law of parties is generally when someone can be in, in death penalty cases when they're convicted of capital murder, generally as an accomplice, um, not the actual trigger man. And in this case, the gentleman who was robbing the convenience store at gunpoint, uh, he was inside the store, but the other guy was in the car outside. Well, I think he was at home, actually. He was, he was involved in, in the he was, he was also in, okay, so no. we won't get into the, okay. he was also no, involved in getting that gun. But here's the thing, if you're going to have, if you're going to have the death penalty, this is what gets to the larger issue, and, and these were interesting side issues in terms of law parties. If you're going to have the death penalty, which we have, it should philosophically be, a, it should be applied in a common sense way, which means if someone is involved in the murder and they didn't pull the trigger, we should apply that just like if you were involved in the criminal gang activity, we can attach that criminal responsibility. Criminal responsibility should be applied to those people across the board. So if you have the death penalty, law parties make sense. So the question is, should we have the death penalty? We have, law, we, we, we have a law on the books that we've had for some time that actually juries are going towards, which is incarcerating people life without the possibility, possibility of parole. Texas juries are overwhelmingly moving to that as their option. We're not implementing the death penalty very often, and very rarely are we even going forward with these cases that have been sitting on death row for some time. So we need to look at whether we should even have it or not, because guess what? Law parties doesn't even become an issue at that point. That, that's how that, we need to get it. Philosophically, should we even have this on the books uh, today? And if we get to that answer, it solves so many of these other problems. Well, one issue I think we haven't mentioned that I really want to focus on, and it relates to most of what we talked about, including the death penalty, is indigent defense. Uh, the fact that people don't have a quality lawyer. Uh, there have been examples of the lawyers appointed for someone at 9 in the morning, and they plea out the case at 11 in the morning. We were actually, we worked with the Indigent Defense Commission to create a pilot program in Comal County, which would be very effective, where someone can choose from a list of qualified lawyers. It's a managed choice program. Because when you think about it, if the government's appointing your lawyer, the government is, your, your lawyer works for the government, the judge works for the government, the prosecutor works for the government, there's not the fidelity to the client that's critical, but there's also a resource issue, and frankly, with what you've done by removing some of the marijuana cases, that at least we know we have this, you know, uh, scarcity of resources when it comes to indigenous defense, but at least it can be spread over a smaller number of cases, so that has an impact as well. Okay. You know, uh, Jolene, one thing that hasn't come up that's all over the newspapers is policing reform, and I think in a broad way, uh, one thing we could do to think uh, seriously about effective policing reform is bringing the police uh, into this process rather than creating a kind of adversarial relationship where it's the reformers on one side and the police on the other. That doesn't work. So to take one small example, Kim had mentioned uh, the importance of mental health and helping police officers identify when there is a mental health crisis. This is part of the Sandra Bland Act, in fact. Mm -hmm. There's this really interesting program in Seattle called LEAD. They do it, this program is that they allow police officers, who are the people better than anybody uh, who can identify the folks on the ground who have mental health problems because they see them all the time. They're the ones who will tell you, oh, I see that guy at that corner almost every other month, he's always doing the same thing, he's generally harmless, every once in a while he freaks somebody out, I take him in, he's back out on the corner again a few months later. These officers who have this information are empowered in Seattle to divert these people from jails into mental health treatment. So Seattle's results with this are something like 
uh, 30% decline in the people in the LEAD program uh, in re terms of rearrests and a 60% decline in felony rearrests. And what I love so much about the LEAD program is that it's a program that rather than viewing police officers as an obstacle in the criminal justice reform process, viewed them as a source of information and as a uh, community that could help us. And I'd like for cities in Texas to take a look at programs like that. I actually visited Seattle and saw Dan's operation two months ago, and, uh, but he's a rock star, so, uh, and he has a lot of money, not like Corpus Christi, so he's able to accomplish some of the things that we won't be able to. All I right. hear a bell, um, so. With, with that, we're, we got about 15 minutes left. We're gonna move on to questions from the audience, so if you have a question you'd like to ask, uh, line up behind this microphone. Um, I would like to remind you that these questions, please make it an actual question. Um, we don't have that much time, so not here for speeches, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so we saw what happened in St. Louis recently, where we had cops that, also in South Carolina, that get indicted, that go to trial, and they get acquitted eventually, because the burden relies on them saying, I feared for my life. What kind of reforms can we talk about holding police accountable in the criminal justice, criminal justice sense? Well, you can talk about reforms from uh, the position of leadership, that what a police chief or a sheriff says to their officers about holding them accountable themselves is important. And that when your district attorney says, we'll hold police accountable, we'll be transparent in our presentations to grand juries, uh, we will allow the release of the videos when appropriate so that the public's not in the dark. I think those are the kinds of reforms you can expect to see with regard to police shootings. And I know in our county, very interesting, the first numbers have just started coming back from uh, our first year in administration. And uh, we've had typically the same number of police shootings each year. And that number is way down for the first eight months. And part of it is that the public is holding people accountable. There's a camera on every phone. Uh, police officers and their leadership know that. District attorneys know that. And so I think that's part of it. But taking a firm line at the leadership level and just letting everybody know up front the law applies equally and uh, a grand jury is, is now randomly selected and they're going to hear this case. I think those are the kinds of things that are contributing to a serious reduction in police shootings in Harris County. Now, whether we hold through the rest of the year or it goes bad, I mean, I'm almost afraid to predict, but so far, so good. Well, and I'll say one of the barriers sometimes is police union contracts, which say you can't interview the officer for 10 days. They make it virtually impossible to discipline the officer. Um, now, one of the other interesting things is you look at, there was a study in Milwaukee after shootings of unarmed black men, and they may, some of them may have been justified or not in self-defense, I don't know, but there was a lot of media coverage. And in some of those heavily uh, African-American neighborhoods in inner city Milwaukee, the percentage of crime percentage of crime reported to the police went down sharply after that coverage. So the importance of having these transparent, credible investigations, and again, in many cases, the officer is appropriately exonerated, but uh, the public knowing that there's a transparent and a fair uh, investigation, independent, that uh, will make sure there's that trust between the police and the community because you can't solve crimes without the help of witnesses of the entire community. Okay, so I wanna bring up a point we talked about earlier about uh, fingerprints and DNA evidence. It's like growing up when you see all these crime scene shows and these movies, it's all focused on the fingerprints and the DNA tests and the lie detectors and the polygraph tests. But as time has gone over and we've figured out that these, all these things aren't 100% reliable. And so it's, it's interesting like seeing this stuff from our pop culture like appropriated in the way it is. Like what's the best way to put that kind of evidence and content in the criminal justice um, system? And what's the best way to... Uh, supplement those pieces of evidence when those happen to fail and don't do their job that, that we think as a society that they always should? Let, I mean, I want the DAs to chime in on this because you all are doing it, but um, <laughs> you gotta see the flip side of that too. Collection of DNA evidence is also what's led to exonerations in our system. So our, our, ability, our ability to be able to get, get someone through the process who's been incarcerated wrongfully and get them deemed actually innocent and, and do our best to essentially try to make them whole after that experience. <laughs> DNA is the key to that. So there's a part of that. I mean, the evidence that we collect that is actually tested, I mean, those are the things that we keep banks of that, that can be, and that's, that is one of the things that we need to start to work on because there is, there is a, so that's where there's a conflict actually between 
maybe there's not so much bipartisanship because the collection of that type of evidence and banking it in a large way, doing cheek swabs like they do in a lot of states with people who are booked so you can link them to other crimes. Like there's some opposition to that because of maybe you're, you're increasing the size of government, you're increasing the role of government, the power of government. So there's a, there's a give and take there. So I'll let you all talk about the prosecution side, but I need, we need, do need to say that there, is some, there are some benefits of having that information available. I'll say from the practical uh, standpoint, um, if those of you that have never sat on a jury, it is very educational when you show up to the courthouse on a Monday morning, you realize that a lot of these cases don't have some of those things. Um, so it's been going on for a very long time. So it's about, uh, you as your office can educate the public, obviously, every Monday when they come and, and, and you sit there and, and you have to actually hold the state to its burden of proof. That's what I'll say from a practical standpoint. So I think integrity of the evidence is everything. And that part of the failure and the exonerations that we've seen, which are not based on prosecutorial misconduct but, or even ineffective assistance of the defense counsel, but which are purely forensic in nature, are a reflection of science's advancement. And as science advances, it's very important that the law keep up with it and that practitioners be aware of it. And because the goal of prosecution is not just to convict, but to see that justice is done, it's important that we are open-minded post-conviction when new evidence is presented or tests are requested, that we don't wholesale fight it to protect a conviction, that we look to find the truth. And that's what prosecution, to me, is really about. Amen. Hi, um, thank you for your time and for your work. I just wanted to ask, um, in what ways are each of you or your organizations involving the input of the communities and individuals most impacted by criminal justice policies in policy reform? I, I mean, I, on, on, a, on a personal side of things, I, you know, through my church, I work with the restorative justice ministry and, and, and talk to folks that have been, you know, that are incarcerated or are trying to re-enter society. So that's just on a personal side of things. I think it's important for us as a community to do that. And part of the, you know, part of the teachings, at least, you know, my faith are that we need to, we need to take care of those folks that have been through the process and figure out how to, re, you know, get them back into society. So that's part of I me, mean, just on a personal level, on a policy level. I mean, this is this is essentially uh, all I do day in and day out. And so um, trying to figure out different ways to bring people together to reform these laws that can impact the most people possible but also connecting with the folks at the local level, and not just the folks in El Paso, where I'm from, but reaching out to, reaching out to prosecutors, defense attorneys, uh, exonerees, those who have actually been, been locked up, been through that process, and trying to build those bridges. I mean, those are, those are some of the things that I you know, try to practice. Well, I mean, I think it's critically important. We work with a lot of groups that, um, uh, for example, there's a group called Just Leadership USA, which they train formerly incarcerated people to be advocates for criminal justice reform. And uh, so I think that uh, certainly there's a lot to learn from people that have been uh, behind bars and, and uh, as far as what they experienced and what they think could work better, uh, particularly inside prisons. Um, so I think it's very valuable. And I think hiring diverse prosecutors and support staff and investigators are key. Our courthouse staff has to look like our community. And um, that has not historically been a fact. And so um, working in colleges to convince people from all walks of life that the way to change our system is from the inside, uh, the place to fight it is on the floor of the legislature in the courtrooms, not out on the street. Um, that's, to me, how we include communities that uh, are affected by criminal justice. And not only hiring them, electing them. Remember that. <laughs> we, we do a lot of uh, panels and things like this, the Charles Koch Institute. Uh, and they're primarily focused on academics. A lot of the giving and the, the charitable work is, uh, is given to academics and to universities. But it's not always possible. We try whenever we can to include uh, ex-offenders and people who have actually been in the system in these kinds of discussions because sometimes you can get in the ivory tower and you can get a little bit divorced and removed from what's happening on the ground. But that's one way that we do try and, and incorporate those voices into our research and in the national conversation. All right, uh, this leads into my question. So, <laughs> recidivism rates are more likely when freed prison, persons from prison cannot find a job. What types of ways can we reform prisons to help make it easier for prisoners to assimilate back into mainstream society? For example, um, as a society, we need more people with technical skills such as coding. Why aren't we teaching these skills to inmates and helping them get a job after they're in prison? 
Well, it's a great question. You know, some of the Thanks. work. The Texas, <laughs> Texas prisoners do have to work, but a lot of that work is doing laundry and building furniture exactly. for, no offense to Chairman Moody, for, for legislative offices. Um, but uh, so we do need to, and we have passed legislation actually to say that the uh, uh, career training in the prison system ought to be correlated to the available jobs in the workforce. Um, so um, there are, especially now rebuilding after Harvey, we're going to have a tremendous need for uh, construction. And one of the critical things, first of all, is literacy. You can't work at McDonald's. You can't work with construction equipment if you can't read the instructions on it. Um, so uh, literacy and vocational have tremendous results when you look at cost-benefit studies as far as reducing recidivism. And I think we need to incorporate virtual learning into that um, as well because the reality is it's very hard to employ uh, the number of instructors we would need. Uh, so blended learning approaches in our correctional institutions I think have a lot of promise. Well, I think also, we, you know, we had, a, we had a bill this session that we passed and hopefully as we watch it get implemented, it's, it's, it's a positive benefit to those folks, but having the, the folks in TDCJ actually develop a plan and having those prisoners take coursework in the plan that matches the, the work that they want to go into prior to their first parole hearing. It was always something that was a model, but it was never really required. And so now we're, we're at least telling TDCJ that prior to that first parole hearing, we need to see a plan that puts this person on the path to successful reentry. And so we're turning what are best practices that were just being implemented randomly into a more, uh, in a more consistent uh, program. I'd say teach them the craft before they go to prison. So uh, what we're doing is we're diverting people, young individuals who are high risk, maybe gang members, and, and they may have used a weapon in the commission of a crime, but maybe no one was actually harmed. And we say, look, go to a trade school. I'll, I'll set you up. Here's your scholarship. Here are your books. You graduate and you're, you're crime free for a certain amount of time, guess what? That felony conviction and you going to prison, you don't have to do that because you did what we think you should have done before. So uh, that's how I think we try to help it is teach them those things before they go to prison. You know, an, another important point is if you do teach those skills, make sure that the barriers to enter the profession once you get out from behind bars have been removed. There's a really infamous policy uh, in Texas that's gone now where they would teach people how to cut hair behind bars, but when you got out, you couldn't get the occupational license to become a barber because you had a criminal record. That was absurd, then why are we spending money on the coursework behind bars? That's gone now, but there are so many quirky little cases like that throughout the state and throughout the country. We should make sure that we get rid of those barriers. Mm -hmm. All right, this is going to be our last question because we've got about two minutes left. <laughs> so we've kind of touched on the issue of race um, behind bars and how African Americans are incarcerated five times more than whites. And um, we talked about the increasing diversity within the system. But what other things, uh, such as eyewitness testimony, jury selection, and racial profiling um, in police efforts, is this... What future reforms are we seeing now, or what's being worked on? Sure. I mean, you had, so the House Bill 34, which was implementing a lot of the reforms of the Timothy Cole uh, Commission uh, that looked at um, both um, show-up identification and also photo identification, uh, and how, how we make those people that are identifying someone in that circumstance actually come out of that environment and, and immediately record how certain are they that this, this identification was correct. We also had some reforms to jailhouse snitch uh, data that we're collecting. So we convict a lot of people based on, on that information. So how are we collecting that? Uh, this is when I mentioned earlier that we're kind of, that, that a lot of this stuff is biting at the edges. This is what I'm talking about. These are great reforms and they're better than where we've been. But a lot of times we're not getting to the heart of the matter. Uh, if you look at data in, in DPS that came up, and I see Alexa back there, she did all that data for Tribune, and so she put that out there, and it showed that if you were uh, African-American or Hispanic and you were stopped, you were much more likely to be the subject of what's called a probable cause search than a consent search. If you're Anglo, you're going to consent to the search. If you're African-American or you're Hispanic, they call it probable cause search, which means that something's going on here and I can search you now. And so that, that shows you, without getting in any further into that, that shows you that the interaction at the roadside is just different. And it's, we just need to recognize that. And it's okay to recognize that, and then we figure out how to do that. And then so data collection is a big thing. Sandra Blandack took a lot of steps forward in data collection. And so unfortunately, that's what we got to. We only, and that's when I said, well, we're not getting all the way there. We're getting to the data collection. It's what we do with that data after we get it 
to make those more significant sea changes. That's the most important part. One of the issues we're dealing with now is uh, people have concerns about risk assessment, um, which of course is if you're not gonna use money, which I don't think we should, whether you get out of jail pre-trial should be based on how rich you are, but you've got to use something other than somebody's gut decision, which actually can lead to a lot of um, inequitable outcomes. So risk assessment is a, you know, these are actuarial instruments that are predictive of somebody's risk of flight, and they can also be used to determine the appropriate level of supervision if you're on probation, how often you should report. Um, parole, uh, parole agencies use them uh, in their decisions, but uh, some have argued that they're uh, you know, racist, and so, uh, and I disagree with that. I think the evidence shows they work, but you can tweak them in certain ways. So for example, the best practice now is you're not using arrests that didn't lead to convictions in the risk assessment. You're not using drug possession convictions. I mean, drug possession is fundamentally different because a lot of whether you've been arrested for drugs depends on what area you live in, um, in terms of the police presence and so forth. The, all the races use drugs in the same amount. So we ought to focus, obviously, on, I mean, you're, you're not going to be convicted of a violent crime or a property crime where there's a victim. That's totally different. That has nothing to do with what area the police are in. So um, I, I just think that there are some people that, you know, on the left that are basically wanting to throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to use these risk assessments. And the alternative is either you're going to be using money or you're going to use some judge's gut feeling, which is actually going to be much worse. Right. I would close with drug policy reform is key to improving race relations, I think, between police and communities of color. That the overzealousness of law enforcement and prosecutors to make a quantity of cases to show that you must be safer if we're arresting 110,000 people in Houston. I would say and suggest to you that that's not what the evidence shows, that we haven't made anybody safer, that violent crime rates have gotten worse with additional drug arrests, many of which are in minority communities, that property values have been lowered because of those arrests that we self-initiate in law enforcement in minority communities. And that the primary reason I made our marijuana policy reform applicable to everyone, regardless of even their record, if all they were in possession of was a small amount of marijuana, uh, that they would be diverted before they ever got to jail. We made it across the board because I knew if we made it for first offenders that we'd get, <laughs> that it would be applied basically, there would be more eligible white offenders than there would be anybody else. And that our historical racism in these areas has not made us safer. We should be using our money for crimes against people and property and the people who commit it. And I think that's where if we start with drug policy reform, we continue to recruit and hire from communities of color into the criminal justice system, even into the prosecution, especially into the prosecution, that will start to heal the wounds that, uh, that have become so obvious to all of us. All right, well thank you all very much for being our panelists. Um,